Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you'll hear from the pioneers and innovators in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, regenerative, profitable and innovative. And we can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag, brought to you by Tamania Angus and Ace Radio, is your next big step in that direction. On the Raw Ag podcast today, I've got Tim McGrath. He's a Senior Business Development Officer with the Queensland Ag Department and Fisheries. Welcome to the Raw Ag podcast, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. So I bumped into Tim uh, a few weeks ago on a LSS at, um, at Tamania and... Um, and you're a, a founder, a co-founder, are you, of the low-stress stock handling? Yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah, I'm one of the originals from 20-odd years ago. We we um, all locked ourselves away and developed the low-stress stock handling um, workshop and, and, and have been together ever since, delivering schools across Australia. Well, we might get back to that, Tim. Just tell us about whereabouts you are at the moment and, um, you know, what part of the world do you live in? Yeah, I'm in uh, sunny Cairns in far north Queensland. Um, yeah, beautiful part of the world. I'm, I'm a senior ag business development officer for Department of Ag uh, here in Queensland, and and work generally across northern Australia. Yes, and um, and uh, you're you know you're doing some quite interesting things in um, business developments. What sort of what are, what sort of things do you get involved in up there? Yeah, it's a it's a bit interesting. Like. A bit different than the traditional agriculture um, extension, where you, you you know either down a line of your beef extension or sheep or or livestock or uh, cropping. I'm, I sort of best describe what I do as a, an agribusiness development is more like I see the development environment. I've got a deep understanding of of across most agricultural industries in the north, uh, the supply chain and, and our environmental limitations um, and. And wow. I sort of explain it like I'm, I'm listening to a, a UHF radio on scan. Um, so you're scanning the whole environment. There's a lot of conversation going on. And then, then every now and then you hear a conversation that that uh, is speaking your language and you can add value and, and you jump in and, and work on developing that, op- you know, that opportunity. So what it looks like for me at the moment is I've got ranging from, um, you know, taking some some growers to develop a capucha pumpkin market in Japan that's just released, that's got access recently through to land development opportunities, um, cropping. Um, yeah, it, it's everything until even ag tech and drones that, that we'll talk about later in this podcast. Yeah, so you're, so you're probably quite entrepreneurial, I'd imagine. You have to be able to identify something that's um, got potential. Um and probably not follow down some some routes that yeah. haven't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting because I mean it's a discipline in itself, um, and and I sort of look at it like everyone has a different. We'll talk about different horizons, but I'll use the north for example. Like there's a there's in the north you got what I call horizon one, which is the traditional agriculture. Um, so we've got extensive grazing and beef. We've got bananas which we provide you know 90 percent of the market and we've got sugarcane and and when you look at the development horizon there it's all about how can we do things better um you know gains with genetics and and um how to reduce overheads uh, increase turnovers those type of things 
And then we have like a second horizon, um, which in the north here, we've got a real development agenda. So it's it's like the traditional industries from the south moving in. We've had, um, you know, some, some irrigation water releases and we've got cotton gins enabling infrastructure with cotton and cropping and all that starting to move in. So it's a... It's new industries coming in, um, and a lot of that's about the good and the bad and, and sprays and all these things coming into industries that you've got to manage. And then you have this whole, what I call a third horizon, which is things we you know, we don't hear about that just come along and the new systems like carbon farming's a, a great one. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's come out of, we, we don't know where we're gonna go with it. There's, there's stuff happening and it's, um, it's pretty exciting. So I've got to work across all those three. Yeah, I suppose when there's um, um, changes like that too, you've got to work out um, constantly. It's difficult to see. Sometimes the early adopter who's perhaps going without the science early, they might be right, and the science takes a while to catch up. So you'd have to get your, particularly being in the department, you'd have to get all that right. Yeah, it's a bit of a tight walk. Um, sometimes I say it's a bit of a Kenny, uh, Kenny Rogers um, yeah, the, the gambler, you know, you've got to know when to hold them, <laughs> know when to fold and when to walk away and when to run. <laughs> yeah. So 25 years in um, ag in the north, you've probably seen, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine, you know, particularly in beef in the north, you've sort of seen the end of the um, last, front, you know, the frontier stage of beef and you're now moving into increasing production and doing, you know, more with the land that you've got. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's still still a development agenda, I suppose. Um, but my first, I sort of grew up in the southeast of Queensland on a small farm. Got formally educated through uh, Gatton College, and my first role was around bio, with biosecurity. And, and in the mid nineties, we still had the tuberculosis eradication program, so I, I did quite a few D stocks through through the Gulf in those days. So, you know, that's only what 25 27 years ago and there was still a lot of short horn and um some of those old cattle whereas it's since then it's it has been quite transformed with um with a lot of development of water and and wire and and, and different genetics yeah and um and so, so you know I've, i particularly had a chat to you when you were down about some of the things that uh you're doing with drones which i found fascinating because you know, when drones first came out, um, and they rushed onto the market, didn't they? And um, and they were they there were some industries that they disrupted. And a fellow called Jerry Grayson, who was a, um, a film pilot, um, and his world got turned inside out when drones arrived. Um, and obviously, there's some people that get disrupted by it, and then there's some people that. Um, that can benefit from it so and you know they're going to um, deliver pizza on the beaches and all sorts of things so tell us what you're doing with drones yeah so i probably accidents probably one of those conversations i listened to and and jumped in and, and and where i can add value so i've been to quite a few um drone information days and and i've only ever saw them as a bit of a recreational toy that takes great photos and it's good for mapping and it's, it's got some some use use cases at the moment but um everyone usually comes to a information day quite enthused about drones and and then then they get to the regulations and they say look flying over your own place you, you don't need a license you can fly a drone up to 25 kilos but you can't fly a drone beyond visual line of sight 
everyone goes, oh, oh, geez, that's a bit, that's a bit ordinary. That's not going to go anywhere. So um, it it only come to me um, when I I met with a, um, a bloke called um, Luke Chaplin, who's a Concurry grazier, who who's doing his Nuffield Scholar on um, drone mustering, and uh, he's got a company called Sky Kelpie, and we got talking, and I said, well, you know, really we need to address this beyond visual line of sight. That's that's the biggest opportunities for drones in 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 agriculture um anything that's automated or autonomous where you can go and get data or measure pasture yields or do stock inventory it's all beyond visual line of sight with our, our control so we need to get over that hump so i challenged luke and said look come with us and and i'll help you get to navigate the current regs and we'll try and get demonstrate how we can fly beyond visual line of sight uh, on your property so Luke now is he's probably the first grazier in Australia I imagine that he's got approval to fly beyond visual line of sight over his t- two Concurry district properties for uh, tw- renewed every 12 months so it's it's quite exciting um, but from there it's it's pretty well impractical for most people to go down that track uh, doing the the SORA risk assessments he had to do and getting his uh, IREX and and all these other requirements that currently uh, the regulator has it's quite challenging so when I look at what's holding drones back as a development officer you, you see there's that safety and regulatory case there's the technology um about drones you know how do they how can they work in our environment um you know battery life and all these type of things and then there's the the operator's capability at the moment i'm i'm pretty confident that the technology is moving so fast now only two years ago um drones we didn't have a drone that could fly in temperatures above 40 degrees uh, we had battery life issues we didn't have really good software two years later we got a drone that's totally uh like weatherproof waterproof dust proof uh fly to 50 degree temperature uh great battery life software that's unbelievable um so that that technology is moving so quickly what is very slow is is any regulatory change so that's where we've chose to spend most of our time on, on working on and and i think that you know i can see your where your skill sets are coming into this so you're um, obviously able to know where to go to talk to the right people about getting um regulation changed um you're a low stress stock handler and you've met someone who wants to muster with a drone that's a pretty good combination isn't it yeah, yeah, it is a, it's a real good combination. And, and I suppose it's it's that developing... So when you go to a regulator, they, they generally don't change unless, unless they're, you know, presented with a scenario that that forces them to, to move. And and when you look at the, the regulator and the, and the terminology or, or their language coming out is like, you know, as the sector and the risks are mitigated... Um, and different operational use cases uh, evolve, CASA will respond by ensuring legislation, guidance, material and standard scenarios remain fit for purpose. So I looked at the environment and said, well, we really haven't been putting pressure on on CASA um, to, to start updating our regulations to allow these things to happen. So with Luke doing what he's doing, he's, he's developed some amazing use cases um, that clearly demonstrate 
the operational advantages, the economic advantages and the safety advantages of, of utilising drones in, in the grazing industry. And, and it's easy for me to go to Casper and say, hey, um, here's a map of Australia. We've got this operational use case that is dealing with, you know, Australia's biggest agricultural sector, the red meat industry. It's, it's like 34% of the, you know, gross product, agricultural product. It's, um, it operates over 90% of agricultural land, which is nearly 50% of Australia. Um, and we're talking about its key operational activity. And then you, you go and you, you get a map and you say, look, this is this is a big area, 50% of Australia. Um, it needs to be basically every year, um, every animal needs, grazing animal needs to be located, bring, to, bring together and process through a yard, which we call mustering. Um, and it need, that's a key function that, that for its business, which is obviously selling animals, for the environmental management, for spelling country, adjusting stocking rates to carrying capacity and, and for animal welfare of vaccinations and treating livestock. And it's twice a year. It's a huge job. And, and in the north, we've obviously got at least 10 million head of cattle that get mustered every year with helicopters. Um, so we're doing it airily. Um, and, and we know that it's it's not cheap. Um, helicopters struggle to get any insurance. And, um, you know, it's it's one of the most dangerous practices that I think it's the highest accident rate per thousand hours um, or per million hours logged. It's, there's, there's a lot of deaths. They operate under 500 feet, what they call them the death zone, where it's hot, it's it's dusty, and, and it's, with little airspeed, if something happens, it's, a, it's an accident. They're on the ground. And then you look at the rest of Australia and it's, um, you know, it's pretty rough. You know, there's, there's a lot of obstacles. There's, it has to be mustered with ground um, motorbikes, vehicles, um, yeah, horses. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of rocks and there's termite mounds. And obviously in southern Australia over the last few years, you found there's a lot of water getting around that's not easy to get over to. So drones have this real opportunity to to add value on on a safety case and and what luke's done is in his particular concurry place and i think i showed you this tom and, and it's some footage so when he musters is usually in the dry part of the year um it's the shortest daylight length so it doesn't get light until 6 30 in the morning um utilizing a drone with a thermal camera he can go out at five in the morning um muster two to five thousand hectare paddocks um go out, locate all the animals very easily. They glow um, and then put them together on a water um, and then at daylight walk them back to the yards. Now, it, it, it clearly operational advantage for him. Um, he gets a couple more hours in the day. Economically, he's doing that at, you know, 70 to $80 an hour, depending on how much you want to pay yourself, uh, versus a helicopter at 550 And... Um, and safety-wise, you, you know, like you can smash a drone into the ground or a tree and, and it, I've crashed a few drones. I've never been hurt. So, you know, there's some, some great advantages there that, that we package it up right. Um, we can start, um, yeah, influencing some of the policy CAS has got. And so you're quite confident that, you know, well, I suppose with a lot of training you can um, do, the, do the mustering and maintain, you know, animal welfare for want of a better word or or stress-free environment for them you know to to get them in um and i i oh, think yeah. i think there's it must be an advantage the first thing in the morning too is the it's cooler for a start 
Yeah, it is. I mean, those. I think everyone's had experience mustering in in the hot environment. It's um, yeah, when it starts off so cool and you end up leaving all your jumpers as it gets hot during the day <laughs> along fence posts to come and find, and and you end up with these poor little calves in the tail that are suffering from heat exhaustion. Um, yeah, there's there's some some welfare things there. Uh, I suppose from a from a behavioural point of view, um, look, there's we've learned a lot when you talk about aerial mustering with helicopters in northern australia the, the saying goes is that you can never outfly the animals um and drones and, and helicopters they don't have teeth so you need to have smart animals you need to understand how to position correctly um get animals minds right um apply and release pressure to keep them light and responsive and use enabling strategies and, and infrastructure so um, if the days when we used to use a lot of forums force and fear uh, for moving livestock are, are probably gone Tom and and drones aren't very effective in those situations but the modern livestock industry now um, yeah I, drones can be very effective uh, used used in the right spot so um, I, I might if, if I could to talk about probably when we talk about a livestock movement it's i usually break it down into three key components and and we need to do all these components right to to have a sustainable um or what's the word these days a, a systems approach um so the first one is is obviously when you come across livestock how you start them um how you bring them together as a mob so the the general mantra there is is the frame of mind you start them in is going to be the state frame of mind they're in all day um, so drones are, are very effective of starting, starting animals and, and just bringing them together as a mob. Then the second key component is obviously driving those animals and, and it's not really the drones round there, um, but you need to be able to drive animals, um, not so just chase them in the direction you want them to go, but to actually work on their minds, pressure at a forward angle and, and have their minds moving forward. Then there's, as you know, there's there's the yard work when they process through a yard, um, and it's critical that we do that right. That we don't provide too much stress on those animals, and that's mental stress from using a lot of force and fear and hunting and shooting. And we need to have them let mentality through the yards um, and make sure that we can process those animals in a, in a day and get them out so so they don't get this. Um, you know, nutritional stress that some people have when they have mobs of 3,000 head of cattle in the yards and, and have them in there for three days. So you have to do these things right. And then the final key to this thing is, is taking the animals back to the paddock. And it's the frame of mind that you leave them in is the frame of mind that you pick them up again. And that is another very good um, operation for a drone is that you can, you can block animals up, you can leave them grazing in all different directions um, and the mantra there is you always leave the animals, don't let the animals leave you. So drones can be very effective in this framework and, and it's a sustainable framework, Tom. Yeah, I suppose, um, look, some of the some of the stockmen listening to this might be thinking, oh, you know, you've got to be there present so that the animal learns and respects and knows who you are, respects you, you know, that sort of attitude about don't let them beat you, let them, and the animals need to respect you. Um, how do you, <laughs> I know that's sort of a bit of a fallacy, but um, um, do you come across that and what, what, is that okay with drones? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, and I'd say, I think it's, it's about doing things better and smarter. Um, 
you know, it's drones should only be, you know, collecting animals and bringing them together as a, as a key aggregation point, whether that's a water or a cooler or, um, or, or something like that. And then, and then they're, they're walked back to the yard. It's very similar to helicopters. You know, you don't want to be um, yarding them up, putting them in the yards and, and doing everything. We still need to um, work with our livestock on foot or on motorbikes or, or whatever the other, other use case we do. Um, but it's all about conditioning. So it's, if the animals are conditioned right, uh, whether that's to a dog, to a horse, to a motorbike, on foot, drone, helicopter, it's all regardless. Um, yeah, it's just how we apply pressure and get animals to move off that pressure and release that pressure, um, that that really counts um, to the animal anyway. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, so how do you see perhaps the commercialisation uh, or the future of this? You know, do, do you think that each farmer will have um, a drone set up and be able to manage it from his office? Or do you think a contractor could probably do it? Or um, how do you yeah, see that well, happening? Yeah, well, I suppose... The, the second real key important part here is about when we talk about the regulatory framework, how that's going to work. Um, so what, what we're anticipating at the moment is that under the current drone, drone rules is, is there's already this um, uh, excluded category called the landhold rule. So they brought in that you can fly a drone over your own land uh, without a licence up to 25 kilos because it's a different... You, you control the ground risk there. It's different than someone else who's flying it over, you know, someone else's house or, or whatever. Um, so we see a way forward to free up the use of, of bead loss is under that excluded category of flying over your own own, own country. So, and that that's within a zone between the ground and 500 metres, is it? Or what is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, so 500 feet. So 500 feet, so sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So at the moment, you obviously you control the ground risk over your place, which is you know who's coming and going generally, um, and also under that five hundred feet, the the air risk there at the moment is is basically, um, you know, helicopters and, and all that. They're not supposed to come under five hundred feet unless they're doing an activity for you or it's near a designated landing. Um, of which you yeah, would be that would be pulled from you anyway. That five hundred feet limit. I yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so I mean the drone you're not allowed to fly over four hundred feet. Yeah. So uh, there's a there's a hundred foot buffer there. So so what we 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 think uh, would be a, a very good use case with Castle that needs to be developed and and the safety case is because we control that we um, yeah should be able to ease up on some of the requirements. Um, so we're talking you know thinking developing a standard scenario and um, minimum training and and um, or recording risks that are associated with that. So, so that's that's where we'd, we'd like to head. And and in answering that question, I think once you create that environment um, for that better use of drones, it, you'll see all sorts of things start to develop. You'll see enormous amount of investment and um, and activities happening in that area. So, um, just for example, at the at the moment I see um, there's a standard drone that comes out with its own charging um, charging centre so it's like a drone in a box um, it's it's weatherproof um, you can you can plug it you put it in the plug the power and plug the internet in and, and you know you can do uh, remote missions so it would be ideal for if you've got an adjustment lock or something like that that you can you can 
you can utilise something like that to um, avoid you going and, and having to check the whole place. So so there's there's enormous amount of risk. I suppose I'm just about, if we create the right opportunity, I think the investment and the use cases will, will start to expand. And and one of the other big things that's changing in the technology and the delivery of um, internet is latency, isn't it? So um, obviously uh, it's very hard to dry, fly a drone with um, low latency, with poor latency, and um, yeah. not quite so bad reading the newspaper. But even that can be annoying because the page doesn't turn quick enough. But um, <laughs> but uh, flying a drone's a bit different, isn't it? That, that's right, and that, that connectivity with um, especially first-person view uh, flying using the camera is at the moment it's it's the radio frequency that um, you know with the algorithms and all that they've got it quite good. It can go probably operational three to five kilometres and line of sight out to you know they claim ten to fifteen, um, but I don't know if that's going to be able to be developed too much more. So the, so the next enabling technology is around like the Elon Musk, um, yeah, Starlink uh, technology and all that. That um, yeah, it was looking like it's going to be rolled out soon, and that that that's enabling real enabling technology. It's a low latency um, with connectivity pretty well everywhere. So um, yeah, the, that's the technology that's, that's getting developed, and um, you know we just got to make sure that. Like I said, the regs and the safety cases keep up with it so we can um, utilise it. Yeah, so potentially with Starlink, you can have a drone anywhere in Australia and fly it from anywhere. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Obviously, the the, the wars are, are being played out in most, most countries these days. They're using, like, satellite, but um, I think Starlink was rolled out um, in the current war and... Uh, yeah, it was. Technically, yeah, yeah you, can, you can be flying a drone uh, hundreds of kilometres away. And there's there's a company in 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 actually Sydney, uh, I think it's Revive Live, um, that have got uh, the role with Elon Musk to roll out that um, that video feed and um, and control for for Starlink. Yeah, wow, things are moving quick. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's 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 quite uh, daunting to be involved in, but uh, look, I'm not obviously I'm. A, bit like you, Tom, we're, we're what we call um, immigrants to technology. We didn't grow up with it, whereas I see my <laughs> kids, they're, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're natives. They've just, yeah, come out and they just know how to swipe and, and, and do everything. <laughs> but uh, at 10, they've got probably a, a smarter tech mind than me. So, Tim, um, look, while we've, we've been talking LSS a bit and you started it off, we've had you down recently to um, get everyone... Singing from the same sheet, I reckon, is the most in, one of the most important things about um, low-stress socking handling. When you walk into the yards, you know people understand a little bit more about what each other's doing. Um, you and and I think that the uptake of LSS through the northern Australia, particularly in corporates, is really large at the moment. Um, what um, you know, what what are you really achieving with LSS? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, Tom. Um, I suppose I've I've sort of done a few schools in southern Australia just recently, um, and and northern Australia, and it's it's interesting the the little differences in in um, and it's it's really about just those animal human interactions. How can we get animals to willingly do what we want? Um, and you know, there's there's been a real twist probably in the last. 
um, you know, couple of decades is that low-stress stock handling or, or stock handling or stockmanship is just not about getting animals to, that's one component, is getting animals to willingly do what they want. The other component is actually getting animals to be as most productive as possible. So in, the, in a frame of, of mind where they're, they're on the game, they, they haven't got this, um, what I call on the guard, where they're, they're worried about the environment and, um, and they're, they're restricted in, in, in their productivity. So really across the north, a lot of the, the companies really gauged in on that and, and worked out that, hey, this low-stress stock handling is actually a production-improving activity for our enterprises. Um, so they've really come on board and, and, and have really driven that approach and making sure that all the younger staff, which across northern Australia is mainly the younger staff, um, understand how important that is to them, how they need to get the animal's mindset. They're dealing with big mobs of animals with probably less skills than what traditionally... Uh, or experience that was traditionally had in the industry because a lot of times they're only you know two years is, is a head stockman um so there's there's been that uh yeah evolution in the north and and in the north we generally have a lot of movement in our animals and it's it's quite a lot of our techniques are about actually um taking movement out of them and 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 bringing them back to us in southern australia as, as you know um it, it's a different scenario. A lot of people have trouble moving their livestock. Um, so being able to correctly position um, and apply and release pressure to get animals to keep that light and nimble and low stress is is, is a key component of it. Yeah, um, I think just on that point, people get a bit confused with low stress because they think they've, you know their animals are um, hard to move and they think if they get low stress stock handling and do the school, they'll, they'll even become harder to move rather than, as you talk, you know, not waste that um, that that um, uh, that the pressure on, on them all the time so that you don't have it when you need it. You can pressure release and keep them nimble and um, not burst their bubbles. Yeah, that's that's right. And there is a big difference between quiet and low-stress animals. So, you know, we, we like uh, low-stress responsive animals. Um, you know, some people who have got very non-responsive animals that are that are quiet um, often used to need some you know quite brutal techniques to move them being electric cattle diggers and 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 all those type of things across yeah sheep and goats and, and cattle um so yeah there there is a balancing act um and and yeah low stress is is about that balance of being able to to draw and drive animals um and have them in the right frame of mind to to do that and be productive at all times because it's an interesting thing when you put a varied group of people together like you do with 30 people in a class you've got some really experienced people and some not so experienced people how do you manage all that how do you pat it together um because yeah, sometimes the experienced people are look i might uh they're experienced but perhaps um have lacked early good appreciation of the way to do it and so they've developed ways that yeah. are, are, are very skillfully done but perhaps need a bit of change yeah yeah so there's obviously um you know it all, all comes about you've got to have understanding then being committed to it um and then you get the results so some people are, are very good stockmen but they they probably have been missing a few little points and 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 positioning themselves a little bit wrong and, and relying on a little bit of force and fear and um, 
and those type of things to move livestock. Um, so you can have very experienced people and, and when they just need a little bit of tweaking and, and they do get it, um, but often they won't say anything and it, and it is, it's interesting dynamics. So some, some young naive people, they, they will ask, ask the question um, that the experienced person isn't willing to ask yeah. uh, but really wants the answer. So, you know, it's, it's a great... The more diversity you have, often at those schools, the, the greater the outcomes um, because it's, it's, it's laid out in front of you. Yeah, so and on northern countries too, I suppose animal welfare and things like that. Um, you know that yeah. you know gives it, giving social license to the company directors who um, are, are responsible for all of the things they need to be responsible as company directors in agricultural beef properties businesses now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's something that we we're starting to see all the day, every day. Um, you know, welfare is becoming a you know, originally it, w- it was always a market, um, a market issue, and it's only getting more. Like I think, wasn't it just recently that, um, like we've had even the um, the Irish looking at our our welfare practices and trying to, you know, maintain our our trade barriers around that, um, and you know how we treat our animals is is key to that. Yeah, and the, and look, in your role, you'd probably see that in other areas too. How you know, I, I know with uh, um, carbon and environment, particularly the corporates are absolutely on the front foot over that because their investors are asking them to to be on the front foot over it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think from a from a welfare point of view, um, one of our biggest challenges is is sometimes people don't understand. Uh, what the welfare issues are. So, so a lot of Europe, um, and I remember Jim Lindsay, mm. you know, one of our mentors, he he when he travelled to Europe and went to, you know, some of the the countries that had put up as the highest animal welfare values, uh, he was horrified with the way they treat animals, um, and in the sense that they didn't understand really, you know, hurting animals and and you know like in a milking scheme where they they take calves away from their mums and, and and all those type of things for for us as graziers in in extensive areas you know that that's something that our animals don't ever get exposed to and um you know there's, there's different standards um and there's always that debate about animal welfare and, and animal rights but um you know we we really focus on what the animals really need um and 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 there is that that ability for them to express their natural behaviour and, and and feel feel free or or stress free in their environment that we, we we put them in and that's 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 a high value that, that needs to be um, yeah continues through our industry. Yeah, so the ethics and science of animal welfare vary quite a lot, don't they? And the ethics obviously vary from place to place because people's um, perceptions of that are different. Yeah, that's that's right, and and all we can do is is try and educate them. Um, that's that's it, and and maintain our our high standards and and get out there and um, you know try and explain it and 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 put it up as a as as what we're doing is is very credible. Tim, just back on to sequestering carbon in the soil through you know changing practices. Um, yep. Where where are we with that in the north? Um, because you know, there's all sorts of 
differing views on that, and they're pretty, they're fairly, um, you know, um, quite different. Some of the views, you know, they're quite, yeah. you know, this this works, no, it doesn't. Sort of attitudes. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I, look, I'm I'm just an observer in this space. I'm not um, working on the projects or anything like that. But I suppose one of the the uh, methodologies, which is the Savannah burning um, methodology, is is has taken off across northern Australia, which is, um, you know, changing that that burning regime, um, which sometimes has, you know, is is great for for that offset. But um, from a grazing point of view, sometimes it, it does lead to tend to be woody thickening. So when we talk about land condition from a grazing point of view, like an A conditioned lands condition is the original carrying capacity um, and that condition from a grazing value can be reduced uh, if we start to get some more timber growth and, and woody thickening coming through which is you know happened across a lot of northern Australia savannah lands um, it, it, but from a carbon um, carbon you know budget it's 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 quite positive so so yeah there's still there's still a lot of um, a lot of challenges in that area and, and things to be worked out, but uh, it's starting to become a little bit more mainstream in, in Northern Australia. And what about uh, natural capital that's, um, you know, getting talked about a bit? Yeah, yeah, there is... There, that That is a, um, some terminology that's starting to get... And what does it uh, mean? That would be a good thing, first of all. What's, yeah. What does that mean? Because it's probably not my expertise. And, yeah, fair uh, enough. It's not something that I... Um, I do, and, and I see a lot of terminology that does come out of CSIRO and, and, and different um, different organisations that, like, yeah, to be honest, Tom, sometimes it's challenging for me to, to understand it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, and I suppose, look, I still go back to that as a development officer, um, if I want to change a practice and, and, and have industry take something up, you know, it's, it's pretty basic. You just need to, one, um, you know, yeah, answer in their mind, is it worth it and can I do it? They're the two big things that you need to answer to get uptake. Um, it, it's pretty simple. Um, and if you can do that, you, you do do get, you know, behavioural changes and, um, and those type of things. So at the moment when we start talking about natural capitalism and, and, and a few of those type of things, it's uh, still a little bit out of my um my framework of you know can we do it and is it worth it well i think it's out of everyone's really at the moment you know like i'm I'm sure there are people that are really concentrating on it but it's very early stuff isn't it it's it's like carbon 10 years ago really yeah yeah And, and environmentally wise up here they have been um you know like i think they value we did a project around um you know harvesting crocodile eggs this was was years ago and and you know the environment had this um, this value of a, of a live crocodile, and it, and it was quite high. Um, yeah, and it, and it was challenging when we're looking from an economic, like in the Northern Territory, where they sustainably um, you know harvest wild wild eggs. Um, in Queensland, we don't do that, but um, when we when we looked into it, our the natural value they put on those those animals was was a little bit too high for us to. Um, to to work with so um yeah you know it's, it's interesting how we can value things and 
and what the real value is. So just explain what the you know what that means if it's too high, and what it is. You know because for the um, you know you know all about what that means. But so if you put too high a value on a natural animal like a crocodile, what happens? Um, well, I know it's not. Yeah, same thing. It's it's probably not my uh, <laughs> my expertise, but um, you know that that value. Um, is is a, whether that's too valued at, at tourism or or, or whatever that yeah. they've come up with that that value um, to try and develop another use case um, that that actually says okay well, we can we can harvest these and we can get one hundred and fifty dollars an egg. Um, it's pretty hard to to show that economic um, opportunity um, in within that current value chain or system. Okay. Well, Tim, we're getting towards the end, and um, when we finish off our podcast, we talk about the three M's, um, mistakes, masterpieces, and mentors. What are your mistakes that you've made? Yeah, I've listened to a few of yours, uh, Tom, and I thought I'll go a bit... I'd like to think I haven't made any mistakes, mate. I've just created a lot of opportunities to learn, and and one of those... uh, yeah, and, and one of my mentors that I'll get up, uh, Jim Lindsay, he, he used to always say, you know, you're very careful of of your language because the way you, you know, your language leads to how you, um, what you think and what you think leads to the, you know, your attitudes and, and, the, and the results you get in your life. So he always had a saying, is when you reflect on things, never say you should have done this, change it to you could have done this because you can't go back into time um, and it's a, it's a better um, way for the mind to think about it and move forward. So, um, But I have got one story. Is years ago when I first done my low, low stress, first low-stress stocking school, it was with uh, Nick Kennish in South Australia. This is 20-odd years ago and, and the school was uh, the host... Um, he wasn't going to do the school because he didn't. He didn't need to. It was going to be for his wife and kids. <laughs> um, and we and we turned up, and he he got some cows. His cows were too quiet, so he got some wild ones from next door. Yeah, and that was all good. And this, you know, that's that's not a problem. But um, first time we let him out into the holding paddock, we didn't realise that all his internal fences were electric. Um, and the cows next door had never been exposed to electric fence. So, so they walked out and they walked over the fence and one cow sniffed it and brrr, it took off and then they bounced over the other side and they hit it and they went straight through this electric fence into a paddock <laughs> uh, that the road happened to be going through um, out back towards the next door neighbours. And uh, anyway, we see this Toyota just going flat across the paddock from the owner. <laughs> And as we're watching this unfold, the cows are galloping up the paddock and the Toyota's coming and they, they met exactly at the gate and he'd uh, yeah, hit the first animal and rolled and broke its leg. So oh. we're just, this is unravelling in front of us and it's like, oh my goodness, what did we just witness? And it was good because we'd just done some theory and, and we basically, um, you know, had, had said that, look, what happened? Yeah, when something happens, the only time that we control is from when it happens to how we react to it. And a lot of times, if we can find a pause button, um, and you, we we have a lot more time than we think, and and um, that's a skill set we need to do, especially with livestock handling. And 
you know, that school, even though we did make a few mistakes and I'd hate to see what the neighbour has said about us in the pub, um, but, <laughs> yeah, it actually probably had one of the most powerful outcomes of the participants. So, yeah, made some mistakes, but, yeah, led to some good outcomes. And, um, yeah, well, that's um, a mistake is an opportunity to learn as you started off, I suppose. Um, yeah. Um, now, some of your um, masterpieces, Tim. Yeah, well, look, my masterpiece is, is probably my, my life if I reflected it now. And, and um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough. I've, I've got a lovely wife. Um, you know, we've we brought two kids, wonderful kids in that we're raising into this world. Um, I happen to live in a location that, that energises me. My location is my vocation in, in Cairns. I come back. I, I, I really enjoy living in this part of the world. And, and fortunate enough that I'm I'm in an industry that uh, agriculture that I I enjoy working in. It also energises me. So, so my masterpiece is probably uh, just that you know being uh, being as an old mentor of mine too. Bud Williams used to say, um, you know, if you do everything right, you can smile and mean it. And and I think at the moment I can smile and mean it. Well done, Tim. And and mentors, you've mentioned a couple already. Yeah, mentors, like obviously my low-stress stock handling family, um, we've been together for 20-odd you know, years all around Australia. Um, Jim Lindsay's, uh, he, he's really touched, moved and inspired, changed the way I, I see things a lot. Uh, Nick Kenny's down your part of the world, Nick's, Nick's great. Graham Reese, um, Chuck Keeley and, and um, yeah, unfortunately we lost... Uh, Rod Knight last year is an exceptional man and, and is missed by many. The the other mentor is probably a, a, a vet in northern Australia called Ian Braithwaite. Mm. Um, Ian's, you know, if anyone ever gets a chance to spend a day beside the yards with Ian pre-testing, uh, you'll learn more about northern Australia's um, pastoral sector than, than any other avenue. Um, he, he's, you know, I've learned a lot from him and, and he's been fantastic and then Within my department, agriculture, I've, I'm fortunate enough to have some great bosses, and and Gareth Jones, my current ones, um, you know, he's he's created a lot of opportunities for me. So, very fortunate, Tom. Very good, thank you, Tim. Thanks for coming on to the Raw Rag Podcast. I have really enjoyed having you down at the LSS, and um, we had a great chat. And I think people can understand why you're doing such a good job up in the north. And best of luck with getting all those uh, changes made for drone mustering in the in Australia, because that could be a, a huge future advantage for us. So thank you very much, Tim. No worries. Thanks very much, Tom. The Raw Ag Podcast is a collaboration between Tamani Rangus and the Ace Radio Network. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag Podcast, make sure you leave a review or rate us on your favourite podcast app.